Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Scott Santons UBI Enterprise. So this episode comes with a bit of a story. Back in 2017, I did a podcast with Sam Sater for the Ring of Fire. And I actually never got to listen to that episode. I never got an email about the episode being posted. And so for years, I just thought that it was just never posted for whatever reason. I think as far as like every podcast that I've been a guest for, it was the only podcast that I thought that they just decided not to post for some reason. Then recently, after Sam Sater has been doing various really negative shows about Andrew Yang, I thought that I had figured out what happened to the episode, that perhaps Sam had just decided that he didn't like the episode because it may have made UBI look too good or something and decided just to not post it. And so I shared that story on Reddit fairly recently. And then uh, a lot of the Yang gang picked that up and decided to ask Sam repeatedly to release the episode because I had said that I'm happy to do uh, another episode with Sam as long as he releases the first episode. Well, Sam got back to everyone yesterday, replied to a tweet with a link to the episode. Apparently, the episode had been behind a paywall, which helps explain why I was never able to find it. He even mentioned that he actually had posted it twice because it had done well enough that it made the best of 2017. So I had just never found it because it was behind a paywall. So it's now out from behind the paywall, and Anyone can listen to the full, about two hours of the full episode. So my thanks to Sam for making that available to everyone without a paywall. And my apologies to Sam, too, for thinking that he decided not to post the episode. So I'm happy to see that this was a misunderstanding. And also, just as a, as a tip for everyone out there who is doing podcasts, it's a really easy way to avoid misunderstandings like this if you simply make sure and share the link once you post a podcast with a guest, with the guest, so that not only do they know that it's posted, but then of course they can also help share that link and actually get more viewers uh, and more listeners to that link. So with all that said, here is the 20-minute interview that I did with Sam for that episode that you can finally listen to now. And my thanks to the Yang Gang for really making this happen. It just, without your help and without your really getting on this, then it would have just remained you know, a mystery to me. And so many people that may have been interested in hearing this episode would have continued to never have heard it. So again, thank you to you all too. Coming up, how does $10,000 a month in your pocket sound? Well, Universal Basic Income Advocate Scott Santons will be here to explain. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Used to spend my nights out in the ballroom. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. How does a check from the government for around $10,000 a month sound to you? 
Recently, Finland was the first to enact a program on a limited basis, what is believed to be the first trial run in Europe of the universal basic income. Here to talk about those benefits is Scott Santens, author of a new piece, Why We Should Have a Basic Income. So, Scott, I am a little bit, uh, let me start off by saying I'm a little bit uh, of, a, of a UBI skeptic. Um, uh-huh. uh, and we will we'll talk about that. But certainly, as we, we hear uh, just another story this past week about the tremendous wealth inequality, uh, uh-huh. when we hear about um, uh, wages that have stagnated for 40 years relative to productivity in this country, we hear about the costs associated with health care and people not finding the work they want and the uh, concerns about saving for, for, for university and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the impetus for a universal basic income is pretty clear and obvious to me. But first, let's start off. Tell us what it is. Sure. A basic income is essentially the creation of, a, uh, of an income floor underneath everyone. So you raise the you raise the income floor, this minimum from zero dollars everybody has right now up to somewhere above the poverty line, say about a thousand dollars per month. That way, if we if we've risen that if we've raised that floor, then there's also so much um, expenses that we no longer need to spend on other things as well. And and so give us a sense of like what the uh, the history of this idea is. Yeah, so uh, this idea goes back uh, quite quite a ways. You, you could say that uh, Thomas Paine, one of our founding fathers, really kind of uh, talked about this idea as well. He it was a matter of agrarian justice, saying that that everyone uh, like the the value of the land uh, should be used to create uh, essentially like um, a, a capital uh, and a small like a small basic income for people turning of, of age of adulthood, and that it should also pay for uh, seniors as well. And this idea was that, uh, you know, this, this money was essentially owned by the people, that they were the ones that created the value and they should be given it. And uh, this idea has, has grown and there's been different versions of it through the years. And we even, we got really close to actually passing it, uh, a version of it under Nixon. Oh. And uh, this was when we actually even experimented with it in cities uh, across the U.S. where a lot of people don't even know that, that we experimented with this in, in Seattle and Denver and Gary, Indiana and New Jersey. These were called the American Income uh, Maintenance Experiments. And I had, uh, I had no idea. What, what, tell us a little yeah. bit about those experiments. Yeah, so this was testing uh, essentially Milton Friedman's version of basic income, which they are very – can practically be seen as identical. But uh, a negative income tax is essentially – uh, raising someone's income uh, up to a certain point and then slowly reducing that amount uh, as they earn more. So it's a, it's a basic income guarantee, but uh, essentially you're varying the amount depending on how much someone's earning. And we, we tested this, and um, we could saw some interesting results in, in the different places we did it. We did it in metro areas and rural areas uh, over a matter of about, um, you know, the course of, of uh, about a decade or so. And it was really, it was really interesting to see, you know, what happened to how people use this money when they were guaranteed it. And we saw that one thing that people did is primary earners uh, actually used this to spend more time looking for the next job. So this was seen as a reduction in uh, in hours worked per year, but it wasn't actually people working less. They were just like looking for a better fit for a job. And we also saw that uh, that women 
who were new mothers used this as essentially a kind of of a paid maternity leave. Like they were able to actually spend more time at home taking care of their newborns. And the funny Canada did this too, in, in Dauphin, Manitoba, and they this experiment was actually over the entire town. So essentially, the town of Manitoba for five years, the town of Dauphin in Manitoba eliminated poverty for five years. And we saw some very interesting effects there as well, very similar with the primary earners and uh, new mothers, but also students actually really returned who had dropped out, even returned to school. Uh, Graduation rates went up, uh, Hmm. grades improved. And one of the most fascinating things is health actually improved such that hospitalization rates decreased 8.5%. So we've actually tried this out in the past and we're very close to, to doing it, and in both places, for various other reasons, it didn't pass. Like in the U.S., there was a great concern back then that the data showed that people would divorce at higher rates. And, of course, back then it was like, oh, my gosh, we can't have, say, women escaping you know, households where they didn't want to, to be in. And you know, it's kind of a different, different world than it is now, but that was a fear, and it was actually – uh, a statistical anomaly. It wasn't really what the data showed, but that was enough of a fear that people really worried about that, and that was one of the, the nails in that coffin back in, the, in the, back in the 70s. And it actually it passed the House in 1970 and didn't pass the, the Senate. What's, what's fascinating about, uh, about that, regardless of whether or not it was a statistical anomaly or not, I mean, one would imagine uh, on some level that one would expect sort of that outcome. I mean, the idea here really is that by providing a basic income to all Americans, that they will have more freedom from want so that they can actually pursue their lives in the way they want to, right? Like, I mean, like you say, yeah. I'm going to spend time looking for a job that I like more. I'm not going to live with this person anymore because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not going to be kept from from leaving this person because I'm afraid of being destitute or not being able to, you know, needing time to, to, to build my own career or whatnot. Um, I mean, so, I mean, certainly that's the uh, a big part of the agenda. Oh yeah, like uh, the way that I like to refer to this too is just it's the uh, just imagine it as the it's the power to say no. That's what really what, what basic income uh, really makes possible. Is that that's how, that shifts thing from involuntary to voluntary. If you have the power to say no, then to an employer because you're earning that income as a citizen, as essentially a citizen salary without a work requirement, then you can say I refuse. Uh, you know, seven dollars an hour. I'm not going to work for that amount. I'm not going to work for that minimum wage. But I will do that job for $15 an hour or $20 an hour, or I'll do it for 20 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week. Like you're actually able to have more bargaining power. And before, that was traditionally only possible through unions. And of course, unions have been on the decline. But this is actually bargaining power on an individual level where people, it gives people on their own the ability to say no. And that carries with employers, and it also carries in households and relationships and, and many other things with the ability to say no. Another thing you could actually say no is to landlords. So if your landlord is saying, well, I'm going to raise the rent, uh, you know, $500 per month, and say, well, okay, I can actually use this basic income and live anywhere in the U.S. I'm not tied to my job anymore, and I'm going to say no. I'm not going to accept that kind of rent raise. I'm going to head over to, say, small town USA and start up there. And that's something that it opens up so many more options that are not available right now simply through that power. 
Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, just uh, sort of tangentially speaking, uh, there's a lot of data out there uh, about that sort of uh, freedom um, uh, that, that show uh, Obamacare. One of the effects of Obamacare mm-hmm. that has been greatly underestimated is that it increased the amount of voluntary part-time employment insofar as that people actually uh, – there's a lot of data out there that shows that people were actually able to work less because – or go into jobs that they liked more because they weren't as concerned about their health care because they had the opportunity to get it through the individual market. Uh, on some level, the, the principles, broadly speaking, are similar here. But let's take a break. When we come back, let's dig further into this uh, it, because it's, it's where the rubber meets the road – on some level, that I am a bit of a, a, a skeptic. Uh, let's, when we come back, let's talk about like what this would actually look like if we were to implement the UBI in the United States. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire. We're talking to Scott Santons about the concept of a universal basic income. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Right now I'm talking with author and advocate for the universal basic income, Scott Sands. So, Scott, uh, when we broke, you had uh, basically told us about the, um, the history of, uh, of the idea of uh, universal basic income. You told me something I had no idea about that had been widely experimented with uh, in this country uh, in the 70s and uh, nearly passed in this country. And we have things that are sort of somewhat similar to this, right? We have like an earned income uh, tax credit, which is yeah, sort of a... Yeah, PT grew out of that. Which, which is a tax rebate, even if you don't pay taxes, a, yeah, a it, government payment. But what makes this different, the universal basic income? What, what, I mean, what, what separates it from simply uh, welfare payments? Sure. So it, the EITC is a good example of this because it works in a, in a very similar way to negative income tax. And so this is that um, if you're earning $0 with an EITC, then you get nothing. But if you start earning enough money, so it shows that you're working, then it, it functions as giving you additional income on top of that. And so that effectively works as a wage subsidy. So the effect of that also is that, say, as an employer, you know the government's going to help with the wages a little bit, so you can actually pay less, and you'll know that the government will pay more. What the basic income does is by giving it to you without a work requirement, then it changes that wage subsidy to something that doesn't necessarily uh, enable corporations to do that in the same way. And it also means that whereas right now we did the EITC and, say, all these programs like food stamps, and temporary assistance for needy families, and Section 8, and you know all these other programs that we have, you can actually replace those programs with actually just giving cash. So it's really it's a vast simplification of both the programs that we have currently and also the tax code itself, because we do actually use the tax code to provide so many various tax credits and deductions and subsidies and these things called uh, tax expenditures. And they actually mostly benefit those who earn a lot of money as well. It disproportionately uh, affects them. So this is actually a more fair way of doing it, what we're currently doing, and it was a whole lot less bureaucracy and a whole lot less spending on, on administration expenses as well. 
in a way that actually benefits everyone more equitably instead of being oriented more just to, to those at the top. So with a UBI proposal would come a proposal to abolish the social safety net and also to, well, I mean, yeah, is so, that? Yeah, so this is actually, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, like I say, rubber meets the road kind of stuff. And it's really, it's an it's a oversimplification to say that we would get rid of, of everything. Really, it's a matter of, of looking at, um, you know, kind of what would be unnecessary and what would still, what would we want? So, uh, like stuff like a food stamp, that makes sense as something that a basic income could replace. There's no reason to give out food stamps anymore and to target those instead. And this is actually one of the reasons why basic income, again, makes so much sense, is that the way that we means test programs means that, that we decide who needs it and who doesn't, and we apply these tests to it, and then you get this only if you meet that requirement, and then when you start earning money, then that benefit, those benefits are pulled away, which means that you essentially see marginal tax rates of they can go to 80% and beyond, which means what is the point of working if you're going to lose mostly all of your essentially total income? And that's actually why Finland is experimenting this, with this. Is they want to see if it'll, people will work more with this. So when we do this, it's also, uh, let's say, imagine – Right now with TANF, say you would qualify for assistance if you earn that, that's the temporary assistance a year. for needy if you earn twelve thousand dollars a year, then you no longer qualify the for the program. Right. So you don't even have to eliminate these things technically by just giving people twelve thousand dollars, people no longer qualify for those programs anyways. And therefore essentially those programs just kind of disappear. But that also doesn't mean that we're, you know, say axing social security or axing Medicaid and stuff. We don't need to do that. Um, essentially with uh, a basic income, we'd be effectively expanding Social Security, uh, lowering the age limit is what we'd be doing. So, you know, you can imagine that you could either allow those on Social Security to also uh, to choose a basic income instead, or we could actually say, well, if you're earning $1,500 in Social Security, well, let's actually give you $1,000 a month in basic income and $500 in Social Security. So there's a way to actually leave everybody uh, at least no worse off and even better off through this, um, you know, essentially smart replacement and consolidation of programs with basic income. I mean, that's basically uh, the the game plan here, right, is to consolidate and you would make it universal as far as you would pay this out to everyone. My only caveats are that, A, first off, like how much money are you talking about? Like what would be the dollar figure that yeah, everyone so would get? Because yeah. this is the uh, yeah. this is the uh, this is the this is where it gets a little bit tricky too, right? Because you're not targeting it to necessarily people who need help. You're giving it to everyone, which uh, there's certainly, uh, I, I think, universality in in a lot of programs is key to its like political uh, durability. But so how much? Yeah. So it's a, what I talk about is because our poverty line in the U.S. is eleven thousand eight hundred eighty dollars per year for an individual, and then it uh, varies according to household size that I think that it makes sense to have a $12,000 basic income at least to start with per adult individual and also provide, say, $4,000 a month uh, per each uh, child. And so that way you would cover every amount of household size and essentially eliminate poverty for all household sizes. And that would cost essentially on its face $3 trillion. Right. However, that's not exactly the real cost because, again, everybody is paying taxes and so that there is a point where people are paying more in than they're receiving back. And so, yes, we're giving Bill Gates money, but he's paying far more than $12,000 uh, 
an right. additional new taxes in order to pay for this. This and is so a, what, this the way is, this works out is very actually it's, it's equivalent to a negative income tax, right? As but far as see, the cost goes, so okay, essentially. So, all right, so hold on. Let me at, just interrupt you, Scott, because we just got about two sure. minutes left here. But that's so. In a sense, it's not really universal. Well, it is universal. It's just you're all paying taxes on the income on top of what you're earning. Right. So I mean, but so in in it is universal, but for in practice. I mean, I guess that's the uh, that's the um, that's the the you know one of the things that I think when we start to you say like, well, it is it's three trillion dollars, but then it's actually not three trillion dollars because it's not just Bill Gates, right? I mean, we're talking about a lot of people where ten thousand dollars. No, I mean, you know, ten thousand dollars would help. Uh, you know, certainly uh, at least uh, two thirds of uh, of the population um, in this country, but. Uh, a third may not. It's a net, um, uh, a net wash because of of taxes. So not fully universal in that sense. Well, so it, you can say that it's not universal, but also you could. It, the fact is, is that you are transferring, say, nine hundred billion dollars from the top to the to the bottom and middle. And the interesting thing too is that, in, if you do it this way, you are taxing. At the top, that's where the, the clawback comes from, is at the very top. And right now what we're doing is clawing back from the very bottom. So which way makes more sense is that should we right now continue clawing away the benefits from those at the very bottom and therefore actually preventing and missing? Uh, you, you create all these, uh, these errors of people who should get it, who don't get it. There's so many people who need help that aren't getting it. Then there's people on the other side of that who see themselves as needing it but don't get it. Just make sure it's, to cover everybody. And then at the very top, you're essentially, instead of creating errors where people aren't getting it or should get it, then essentially you're creating errors where people you say don't need it are getting it, and then you tax that away. And well, so that I'll way, tell you it makes Scott, so much more sense than what we're doing now. It's a, it's a fascinating idea, and it's one I think that uh, certainly people should be digging into because, uh, you know, I have a little bit of skepticism, but it's really more about uh, it, uh, applying it. Uh, but uh, the idea behind it, too, I think is, is great. And like you say, there's been experiments with it. Scott, uh, Sands, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Just one other thing. When it comes to the cost, really, the question is how much does it cost to not have a basic income? Like, how much are we spending right now on crime and health and everything else that we actually could avoid spending by having a basic income? Great point. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Scott Sands is a founding member of the Economic Security Project an advisor to the Universal Income Project and founder of the Big Patreon Creator Pledge. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Scott Santon's UBI Enterprise. And thank you to all my executive producer tier supporters on Patreon and Anchor, whose names include the Gerald Huff Fund for Humanity, Harun Mokhtazarda, Stephen Grimm, Andy Stern, Roy Behat, Floyd Marinescu, Zach Sargent, Larry Cohen, Aaron T. Schultz, Tom Cooper, Robert Collins, Stephane Boisfert, Justin Walsh, Dara Ward, Joanna Zarak, Ace Bailey, Albert Wanger, Victor Lau, Athena Washington, UBI Visuals, Gary Turner, Peter T. Knight, and Sanford Redlick. If you too would like to be thanked by name at the end of each episode, Head on over to my Patreon page and select the Executive Producer tier or push the Support This Podcast button on Anchor and select the $10 level.